Father, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. We pray that you would give us insight into this difficult passage, that the Holy Spirit would speak to us through this text, that we might know you better and more fully. Father, please allow our thoughts of you to be based on what you have revealed to us from your word, not from products of our own imagination. Allow us, Lord, to see you as a thrice holy God, and yet one who, through the gospel of your Son, invites sinners like us to rejoice in you. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name, for your glory. Amen. Please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Let me just say this up front. 2 Samuel chapter 6 is a difficult chapter. In the story that we're going to cover this morning, God strikes a man dead because the man prevented a wooden box from falling off of a cart. Like unbelievers who want to attack the character of God, uh, they just love to pick this chapter apart. And even well-intentioned believers who genuinely love the Lord and and really do love his word uh, can really struggle with how to process this story. So I haven't actually looked into this. But I don't think this chapter is uh, featured in too many uh, children's picture Bibles. I don't think this chapter is super popular at weddings. Uh, I don't think that, like, anybody's life verse comes from this narrative. But that's one of the wonderful things about preaching through books of the Bible. Like, I as a preacher can't just, uh, like, pick and choose to preach on the things that that I really want to preach about— Uh, In a sense, the Holy Spirit assigns to us our text each week. Like the reason we're in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6 this week is because we did 2 Samuel chapter 5 last week. And the reason we did 2 Samuel chapter 5 last week is because we did 2 Samuel chapter 4 the week before that and so on. And that's a good thing because we believe, 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is breathed out by God. And Romans 15.4, that everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. And this chapter, this narrative, is no exception. No matter how difficult or unsettling it may seem to us at the outset. Second, the other great benefit of going through a book like this is that each week we are just building off of the context from previous weeks. And so for most of you, uh, this will be review, but let me just quickly recap where we've been so that we're all on the same page. King Saul is the first king of Israel, but because of his uh, disobedience to God, because of his disregard for God's word, he is rejected by God. And so God anoints another man, a man after his own heart, David, to be the next king. And after this long period of waiting, David finally becomes king over all Israel. Saul and his three sons are killed by the Philistines. Saul's general Abner is killed by Joab. Saul's last remaining son, Ishbosheth, is assassinated. And so the house of Saul is gone. All 12 tribes now come together, united in their support for David. And so David's long, difficult path to the kingship finally comes to an end as he now rules as king over all Israel. And so last week from 2 Samuel chapter 5, we looked at two very important things that David does early on in his reign. First, he conquers the city of Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem was thought to be invulnerable uh, because of its position on top of a hill, uh, because of its fortifications, uh, because they had access uh, to water through tunnels under the city. 
but with God fighting for them. David and his men are able to do what no previous generation of Israelites were able to do. Uh, They drive out the Jebusites completely out of Jerusalem for good, and so they conquer the city. Then David does something politically astute. He makes Jerusalem the capital of his kingdom, shifting the capital northward from Hebron to a more central location for all the tribes. So David conquers the city of Jerusalem, And the second important thing he accomplishes early on in his reign is he defeats the Philistines. We saw David depending on the Lord, right? Twice on two different occasions, seeking God's will on what he should do. And God grants him two just dominating victories over the Philistines so that they're in full retreat. It's just generally speaking, things are really looking up for David. He's finally, after years and years and years of waiting, he's finally king over all Israel. And the threat of the house of Saul is gone. And the threat of the Jebusites is gone. And the threat of the Philistines is gone. And so we come into our chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 6. We come in thinking, well, all of the threats... And all of the dangers are finally gone. David and Israel are finally safe. But they're about to find out there's something or someone even more dangerous than the house of Saul, even more dangerous than the Jebusites, even more dangerous than the Philistines that David and Israel must deal with. So let's get to our text now. A little inside baseball here. Originally, my, uh, my plan was to preach the entire chapter this morning. Uh, but as I, as I started putting the sermon together and, and thinking about it, I became more and more convinced that the narrative in verses like 1 through 11, uh, 1 through 9 maybe, just had to be uh, its own sermon. And, and so our plan then is to just cover those first nine verses of this chapter this morning. And we're going to save the second half for next time. We're going to have two points. You can write these down if you're taking notes. Pretty straightforward. Point number one, the ark of God. Point number two, the wrath of God. The ark of God and the wrath of God. Let's start with point number one, the ark of God. Second Samuel chapter six, starting in verse one. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Okay, so what is this ark of God that they speak of? The ark of God, uh, sometimes it's called the ark of the covenant. Uh, It was a wooden box that God commanded the Israelites to build, covered in gold. It was maybe about four feet by two feet by two feet. So it's not a particularly large box, Uh, Inside the box would have been uh, the Ten Commandments, uh, a jar of manna, and Aaron's rod. And on top of the box was this lid uh, called the mercy seat, in which there were two golden angels that were facing each other. And all that's nice, but what made the ark particularly important and spiritually significant was that it represented the presence of God among his people. Now, the box was not God, and the box was not like a representation of God, right? That would be an idol. Uh, And God was in no way confined to the box, but the box was where God's presence was particularly and specially manifested to his people Israel. And typically, the ark would be placed behind uh, this thick curtain in this room in the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies, uh, and it was completely inaccessible to the general public. Uh, Only the high priest would be allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, and even he would only be allowed to go in once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. On that day, in that place, the high priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat, on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, in order to make atonement for the sins of the people, and an atonement that, of course, looked forward to the complete atonement that Christ made for all his people on the cross. All that to say, right, you add all that together, the Ark of God was a very significant item in Israel's national worship. 
Now, if you were here with us at First Baptist last August, right? So August of 2020, uh, you'll remember those chapters at the beginning of First Samuel, uh, chapters 4 through 6. Uh, they were basically all about the ark. Right? And so uh, turn back there real quick, and I'll try to kind of jog your memory on those chapters as you flip through them. Uh, chapter 4, the Israelites go to war against the Philistines, the Battle of Aphek. And they think the ark is going to be like their good luck charm, and so they bring it with them into battle. And of course, they get obliterated, demolished, and worst of all, the Philistines take the ark of the covenant captive. So the Philistines think, well, this is, this is really cool. We, we just captured their god. And so chapter 5, the Philistines proudly display the ark of the covenant as like a war trophy in the temple of their god, Dagon. All glory be to Dagon. But then what happens? They come into the temple and Dagon's statue is lying face down on the ground before the ark, its head and its hands cut off. That was God demonstrating in this powerful and unique way that he was the living God and that Dagon was nothing but a lifeless idol. Dagon had to be picked up off the floor by his worshipers. And strange and Terrible things start happening to the Philistines. Chapter 5, verse 6, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a a great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they basically play hot potato with the ark. They pass it from town to town until finally, after a couple of months, they send it back to Israel that they can't take it anymore. Right? That's chapter 6. And then at the end of chapter 6, the ark comes to the Israelite town of Beth Shemesh. And there you'll remember the people looked upon the ark of the Lord. They look upon it profanely and irreverently. And God strikes 70 of them dead. And the people don't know what to do. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And so look at 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. The men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab, on the hill. The house of Abinadab on the hill. Now fast forward to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Let's go back to chapter 6. Now look at verse 3. They carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Think about that. The ark of the covenant is in the exact same spot in 2 Samuel chapter 6 as it was in 1 Samuel chapter 7. You've been here for the last year, you're thinking like, hmm, not that you say that. I don't remember the ark coming up much at all. And you'd be 100% correct. There's this brief mention of the ark in 1 Samuel chapter 14. But other than that, the ark has not even been mentioned since 1 Samuel chapter 7. Which means that for decades, 60 or 70 years, The Ark of the Covenant has just been sitting in this guy's house on a hill. My wife and I got married. Uh, Some well-intentioned wedding guest uh, bought us a a waffle maker. It's like, okay, what are we going to do with a waffle maker? And so we just kind of put it in our closet, and it stayed in our closet for close to a decade until we moved, like out of sight, out of mind, like, Totally forgot we even had a waffle maker. Think about all the waffles we could have been making. Uh, But this is not 10 years. This is 60 to 70 years. And most importantly, this is not a waffle maker. This is the ark of God. The manifestation of God's presence for the Israelites. This was an object that was supposed to be a key component of their national worship. And it was just completely out of sight, out of mind for decades The entire reign of Saul as king of Israel, the ark was completely ignored. Listen to what it says in 1 Chronicles 13. Uh, 1 Chronicles 13 is like a parallel chapter to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Uh, 1 Chronicles 13, 3. This is David speaking to all Israel. Let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. We did not seek it in the days of Saul. Like we've completely ignored it for decades. It's been cooped up in someone's house all the days of Saul. And David's like, now that I'm king, I've got to do something about that. We've got to go 
and get that ark. And so we have to commend David's heart here. Now that the tribes have been united, now that our enemies have been subdued, now that we've got a little bit of stability here in Israel, we need to get back to national worship as God's people. We need to prioritize the Lord. And so we need to make Jerusalem not just the political capital of the nation, we need to make it the spiritual capital of the nation. And that starts with bringing the ark of God here. So David acts on this great idea. It's like, hey, you know, if we're going to transport the ark, right, you might as well go all out. And so there's this grand and spectacular event. Just look at all those instruments in verse 5. It's like this like full orchestra and you've got singing and you've got dancing, uh, celebrating. Uh, it's, it's a huge procession. David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord. Many of you are probably familiar with Psalm 24. It's a, a very well-known psalm. Psalm 24 is probably written about this occasion. Uh, the bringing of the ark into Jerusalem. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. That's referring to the gates and doors of Jerusalem. That the king of glory may come in, referring to the manifestation of his presence, right? The Ark of the Covenant. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. We just saw how strong and mighty in battle he is in the last chapter, right? We saw what he did with the Philistines. That's the king of glory that's coming into Jerusalem. So we've got just this wonderful, uh, festive atmosphere of celebration, of joy, as God's ark is being brought into God's city, spearheaded by God's king, whose intentions are simply to glorify the Lord and restore Israel's national worship. This is glorious. But let's not overlook this small, minor, insignificant little detail in verses 3 and 4. Right, we've got to get from point A to point B. We've got to move the ark 10 miles east from Kiriath-Jerim to Jerusalem. And so how are we going to do it? Verse 3, they carried the ark of God on a new cart, and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. So the Israelites put the ark on a cart, and a new cart, mind you. And they hitched the cart to some oxen, and they have the oxen pull it as part of this grand procession to Jerusalem. And with Uzzah and Ahio, the two sons of Abinadab, like two men who literally grew up with this ark in their house, with their oversight, with their care on this short journey, everything's going to be all right. Point number one, the ark of God. Well, as you probably already know, everything's not going to be all right. Point number two, the wrath of God. Look at verse 6. When they came to the threshing hold, the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. I said, whoa. Like, like we have to stop right there. Now, if verse 7 is not shocking or troubling or unsettling to you, then I think one of two things has to be true. Either you're not paying close enough attention to the text, or... You're too familiar with the story. And you need to kind of pause and just see afresh just how jarring this is. God struck him down there because of his error, and he died beside the ark of God. 
Let's look at the, the picture here. There's this grand procession. It's making its way through, and it comes by some threshing floor. It's basically a place where you would harvest grain. Maybe the, I don't know, the cows get distracted or something. They see all this grain on the ground. Uh, like, who knows the mind of a cow? But they, they stumble, right? They, they trip. And maybe that causes the cart to tip a little bit, and, and the ark's maybe about to fall off. And so Uzzah puts out his hand to prevent the ark from falling, and immediately he's struck dead. And the procession comes to a screeching halt. And our gut reaction is, wait, what? God struck him dead? For that? I mean, if you and I were like walking down the street and like your iPhone slipped out of your hand and I caught it before it fell into a puddle— like, you're buying me lunch, right? Like, I'm your hero. And so it kind of, like, boggles our minds that, that God would strike us a dead for saving his ark from hitting the mud. Like, if anything, we would think that he ought to be praised for his helpful reaction here. And so it seems, uh, at least on a surface reading, like a rather unreasonable response to a well-intentioned act. And maybe we think that way because, like, as we read the story and as we put ourselves in Uzzah's shoes, we think, I I probably would have done the same exact thing that he did. And so we have to pause here and ask, why? Why did Uzzah die? Just because he touched the ark, why? What was, look at verse 7, God struck him down there because of his error. What was the error of Uzzah. Well, at this point, we need to take a step back uh, from this like glorious and wonderful and festive procession. And we need to realize that no matter how well-intentioned it was, this whole procession was in great error. Yeah, it was a great idea to bring the Ark of the Covenant out of obscurity in Kiriath-Jerim. And it was a great idea to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. But no, this was not the way to do it. God's word is very clear on how the ark is to be handled, on how his ark is to be moved. First of all, the ark should have been covered in transport. Numbers 4-6 makes that clear. Second of all, number 7-9 Talking about the ark uh, refers to the things, the holy things that had to be carried on the shoulder. And so the, the ark, the, the box part, had these two rings on either side. And poles would be put through those rings so that when it was transported, it would be carried on the shoulders of the priests by those poles. It was not to be carried in any other way. And we don't know this for sure because the text doesn't explicitly say it. But I don't think it's unreasonable to suggest that the reason the Israelites put the ark on a cart pulled by oxen is because that's what the Philistines did when they sent the ark back to Israel. And so we can forgive the Philistines perhaps for their ignorance. Like they didn't know any better. But God's people, they should have known. So the whole mode of transport was error. It should have been covered. It should have been carried on the shoulder. The whole mode of transport was blatant and sinful disobedience to the word of God. But now for Uzzah's transgression specifically, Numbers 4.15 is crystal clear, When Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary as the camp sets out, after that, the sons of Kohath, that's probably what Uzzah was, a Kohathite, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. The command is as clear as can be. They must not touch the holy things. And the warning that comes with the command is also as clear as can be, lest they die. And so on one level, 
Uzzah's error was simply disobeying God's word. He was probably a Levite. He was definitely an Israelite. He should have known God's word. As a matter of fact, all the people should have known God's word. And especially King David. King David should have known God's word. Part of the duty of being a king was to write out his own copy of the law. He definitely should have known better. Like this isn't uh, like a confusing or obscure part of the law. Like, well, like uh, is it the, the bearded vulture or the black vulture or the carrion vulture that we're, we're not allowed to eat? Like it's, some of those food laws are kind of confusing. This law is very clear. You shall not touch it lest you die. Uzzah, all the priests, all the people, King David, they knew the law. They disregarded the law. And for that disobedience, Uzzah paid with his life. But I think that only answers our question halfway. Uh, The question of why God struck Uzzah dead. Sure, God's word commands that his ark be carried in a certain way. And God's word commands that his ark be dealt with in a certain way. And Uzzah did disobey that command. But why does that disobedience... What appears to us at first glance to be be a rather minor thing, why is it so drastically punished with death? And so to really understand what's going on in this chapter, to really understand why God struck us a dead, we have to go beyond the, the laws of how the ark was to be transported. We have to go beyond the laws of how the ark was to be handled. We need to have a proper understanding of the holiness of God. Now, by the holiness of God, I'm not just referring to his moral purity and his sinlessness and his righteousness, although that is a huge part of it. I'm also referring to how his moral purity, his sinlessness, his righteousness, how those things make him completely different and completely separate from sinners like us. I'm referring to his, his otherness, his separation. Habakkuk 113 refers to God as you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. That makes him completely different from us. A sinner who not only see evil and look at wrong, but invent evil and do wrong. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has this vision of a holy, holy, holy God, and it absolutely crushes him as he realizes his sin. I am a man of unclean lips. He sees his sinfulness in contrast to God's holiness. Robert Exodus 15.11 Who is like you, majestic in holiness? The answer is nobody. He is altogether different from us, altogether unlike us. We commit sin. We violate God's perfect commands every single day. God and God alone is majestic in holiness. God's holiness makes him completely separate from sinners like us. That's what Uzzah, at least in that moment when he touches the ark, that's what Uzzah failed to grasp. The ark of God represented the presence of a holy, holy, holy God who is altogether separate from his sinful creation. And that's why it was not to be treated lightly or casually by sinful men. That's why there were all these rules about how it was to be handled by sinners. That's why Uzzah even touching the ark just casually grabbing a hold of it as it slips off the cart. That's why it's such a terrible offense because in that moment, Uzzah, as a sinful man, completely disregards the holiness of God that that ark represents and he treats it profanely just like any other object that he might handle. Here's how R.C. Sproul put it uh, in his classic book, The Holiness of God. Quote, Uzzah assumed 
that his hand was less polluted than the earth. But it wasn't the ground or the mud that would desecrate the ark. It was the touch of man. Sproul goes on to explain how like dirt and mud is not inherently sinful. Dirt and mud don't rebel against God. Man is sinful. Man rebels against his creator. And so God does not get angry at dirt and mud. His wrath is not directed at dirt and mud. No, his anger burns towards people like Uzzah who violate his holiness with their sin. His wrath is directed at sinners like us. Point number two, the wrath of God. I warned you up front, right? This story, if we pay close enough attention, if we can see it with fresh eyes, this story is shocking and it's troubling and it's really unsettling. And maybe you say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. That's an angry God. He's full of judgment. That's the Old Testament God of wrath. That's not the God of the New Testament. Well, if you think that the God who struck Uzzah is just the God of the Old Testament, I would suggest that you have not read your New Testament very carefully. For I, the Lord, your God, do not change. In the New Testament, in the book of Acts, which is in the New Testament, the same God who strikes Uzzah dead strikes Ananias and Sapphira dead. Ananias and Sapphira didn't hurt anybody. They didn't even steal from anyone. All they did was lie about how much they sold their land for, and boom, God strikes them dead. A few chapters later, also in the book of Acts, you've got this king, King Herod. All he did was receive the people's praise, and boom, God strikes him dead. And isn't it the book of Hebrews? The New Testament book of Hebrews? That reminds us that our God is a consuming fire and that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Friends, the same God that struck Uzzah for touching his ark, he's the same God that will judge each and every one of us. That is a terrifying reality because he remains a holy, holy, holy God. And we as sinners, we fall so short of the perfect standard of righteousness that he demands of us precisely because he is a holy God. That's a very important thing for us to remember. When God judges us, we are not going to be compared to other sinners. We are not going to be judged for relative righteousness. We are going to be compared to the perfect righteousness of a thrice holy God, a perfect standard that we all fall so desperately short of. This past Tuesday, I had to go to traffic court out in Long Island. Long story, but basically I, I, I got this minor violation. I was bumped down to a parking ticket. You say, oh, pastor got a ticket. Uh, I did it for you. I, I did it for the sake of a sermon illustration, right? I do all things for the sake of the elect. Um, so I'm, I'm there. I meet with the prosecutor, and he says, well, okay, we're going to bump it down to a parking ticket. Just see the judge, pay the fine, and you can go home. Great. So I go into the room where the judge is sitting, and it's this, this big room. All these people are waiting, and I'm next to be called up. And right before me, this young guy in his 20s gets called up, and he did something really bad. He, he was like 55 miles over the speeding limit, like really bad. And the judge is just chewing him out berating him for how, rightly berating him for how reckless and irresponsible he was. And it's like, it's like, you know, I don't know, watching an episode of like the People's Court live and in person. Uh, th- this guy is going like Judge Judy on this guy. And, and, and the kid just gets the book thrown at him, like literally thousands of dollars of fines, points on points on points on his license, uh, community service, like everything. Now the rest of us in the room, we're, we're watching all of this happen. <laughs> and I'm next. And I'm guilty of a parking ticket. Right? I have to pay a fine. But at the same time, I'm also thinking, oh, I'm just happy I'm not that guy. Well, friends, that's basically how most of us think about our sin. 
I'm just happy I'm not like that guy. We're like the Pharisee in Luke 18. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, adulterers, unjust, or even this tax collector. Like we know we're not perfectly righteous, but we think if we're just better than some other people, if we just don't sin as badly as other people, or if our traffic violation isn't as bad as 55 miles over guy, then we're going to be okay. Why would God punish me? My sin is not as bad as so-and-so's sin. So I don't deserve death. I'll be okay. And even those of us who would say the biblically correct things about God's holiness and our sinfulness, like even for us, I think there's a part of us that still thinks this way, a part of us that still has this mindset. And that mindset really comes out when we read a story like God killing Uzzah, and we think, well, that's a bit harsh, killing Uzzah for such a small thing. You see that? Because essentially what we're saying, whether we're conscious about it or not, Essentially, what we're saying is, why would God kill Uzzah? Uzzah's sin is not as bad as so-and-so's sin. He does not deserve death. But if we understand that all of our sin is an offense against an infinitely holy God, if we understand that his righteousness is the standard against which we will be judged, then we see that all sin— no matter how small it is, no matter how seemingly insignificant it is, no matter how we might in our flesh judge it, all sin is deserving of death. Because all sin and all disobedience against God's word, from murder to adultery to stealing to cheating on your taxes to glancing at pornography to being harsh with our words, to pride, to jealousy, to lying, to casually putting out your hand to touch the ark of God. All sin is ultimately rebellion against our holy creator. In all sin, the wages of sin is death. The soul who sins shall surely die. All sin is deserving of death. I think it's only when we truly understand that truth that we can read a story like this of God striking us a dead for touching the ark. And we can say, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? That we can say, God, you are good and you do good. But that leaves us in a really unsettled spot, doesn't it? Like, yes, God is holy, holy, holy. That's undeniable. Yes, God is right in what he did here, right? For the soul that sins shall surely die. And yes, God is good in judging all sin, including the sin of Uzzah. But there's an inevitable question that comes out of properly understanding this narrative. And that's what about us? What about me? What about you? Yes, the thrice holy God of the Bible is a just judge of sin. But if the thrice holy God of the Bible is the judge of our sin, we're doomed. We're hopeless. But friends, God is not just a holy and just God. He's also a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we see that on vivid display, even in this story. You say, how's that? Well, if we're properly understanding the holiness of God, right, that a holy God must punish sin, and that the wages of sin is death, then the shocking and surprising thing about this story is not so much that Uzzah dies, it's that everybody else lives. Because again, Uzzah is the one who unfortunately reached his hand out. But everyone who was a part of that procession, including King David, who spearheaded this whole thing, everybody deserves to die. Because everybody was involved in the transportation of the ark by means prohibited by God in his word. 
Everybody was involved in the disobedience of God's word. Everybody was involved in the irreverent handling of the manifestation of the presence of a thrice holy God. And so everybody involved deserves death. But only Uzzah dies. And so our attention is naturally drawn to the fact that Uzzah dies in this narrative. But really the shocking thing is that everybody else in the story continues to live. In this story, Uzzah alone receives the due punishment for his sin. Uzzah alone receives true justice. Everybody else in this story, including, perhaps most importantly, King David, is shown great mercy. They do not immediately die, though the wages of sin is death. Friends, our God is a holy God, but our God is also a merciful God. He is a merciful God who loves sinners like you and like me. Sinners who deserve death, not just a, a physical death, but an eternal death in hell. He loves sinners like you and me, and so he sends his son to rescue such sinners. He sends his son to die in the place of sinners on the cross, where Jesus took upon himself all the sin of all who would trust in him and suffered that wrath of God that we've been talking about, the wrath that we deserve on our behalf. He pays the penalty for unholy, defiled sinners like me and you, sinners so defiled that if we were to touch the ark, the symbol of God's presence, let alone be in God's presence, we would instantly perish. But Jesus takes upon himself that sin, he pays our punishment in our place, and instead we get his perfect righteous record. I mean, we have this, this guttural response to seeing us struck dead, and we think, uh, that's not fair. But do we have the same kind of response when we read about the crucifixion? Because that is not fair. That a sinless, perfect, spotless Jesus would die. It's fair that Uzzah dies. It's not fair, so to speak, that Jesus dies because he never sinned. It's not fair, but it's the best news in the world for us. Because in that unfair exchange, God shows his grace and his mercy to undeserving sinners like us so that we who have trusted in Christ might never know the wrath of God for our sin, but instead have eternal life with him. Friends, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But if Christ has fallen into the hands of the living God in our place, then we have no judgment to fear. Friends, that's the gospel, the glorious gospel of our salvation. Whether you came into this room as a Christian or you came into this room as an unbeliever, I remind you that that is your only hope in dealing with a holy, holy, holy God. That was a lot. Uh, This is a very heavy chapter. And hopefully that, that gives you plenty to think about and meditate on even this week. Let me close with just three quick takeaways from this passage. Takeaway number one, God cares about how he is worshipped. God cares about how he is worshipped. We've spoken at length about how this, this whole procession, right, engineered and spearheaded by David, how it was against God's word. It was sinful. But at the same time, like, you you can't doubt the man's sincerity. You can't doubt the genuineness of his heart's desire to worship God. Like, like I really do think that his, his motives were good. His intentions were good. He really was trying to worship God by bringing the ark into Jerusalem. But here's the point. The right intentions to worship God alone are not enough. Because God cares about how he is worshiped. Like as well-intentioned as this was, at the end of the day, 
It was against God's word, which clearly prescribed how he is to be worshipped with regard to the ark. And so it was sin. And we see in the story the consequences of that sin. This is just a, a practical application for us, right, the church. Friends, we need to remember that in, in the same way God cares about how we worship him. Look, we can't just do whatever we want, whatever we feel like doing in our worship of him. Ultimately, your good intentions don't matter at all if you go against God's word in your worship of him. I think the clearest way in which this applies to the modern church is, well, going to church. There are way too many professing Christians, including perhaps some of you in this room, who say, well, what really matters is that I'm worshiping God. It's about me and Jesus. I don't need the church. I just go when I want. God ultimately cares about my heart of worship. Well, yeah, God does care about your heart of worship, that it's obedient to his word. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, Hebrews 10.25. Application point number one, God cares about how he is worshipped. Application point number two, over-familiarity with the things of God can be a very dangerous thing. Over-familiarity with the things of God can be a very dangerous thing. This is a bit of conjecture, because the Bible doesn't explicitly state this, but maybe some of the reason why Uzzah was so careless in his casual touching of the ark, even when God's word expressly prohibited it, was because of his familiarity with the ark. I mean, the thing's been in his family's house for decades. Like, as long as he's been alive, that thing has been in his house. And so, of course, when David wants to bring the ark into Jerusalem, of course it's going to be you and your brother who are in charge of transporting it, because it's been in your house. You know it. You're familiar with it. But it might have been his familiarity with the ark that led to his sin and his death. So maybe that's conjecture. Even if it is, let me give you another illustration of how over-familiarity with the things of God can be a dangerous thing. How about, for those of you who have been Christians for long enough, for those of you who have read this story enough times, about the fact that we can read a story like this and be unmoved in our hearts. We can read this narrative and maybe thoughts of the holiness of God or the sinfulness of man and all that kind of stuff passes through our minds, but we're just completely unaffected because of how familiar we are with this story. Brothers and sisters, that should not be. We in this room who know the word the best we need to be praying hardest with the psalmist. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things out of your law. No matter how many times we read a story, no matter how well we know what already happens, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things afresh out of your word. Application point number two, over-familiarity with the things of God can be a dangerous, perhaps even a deadly thing. Finally, application point number three. God's people ought to fear him. God's people ought to fear him. One concern I had uh, as I was preparing this sermon is that those of you who are Christians, you, you've placed your trust in Christ, uh, that you would think of this sermon as being mostly for unbelievers. They need to worry about the judgment of a holy God. Praise God, I've trusted in Christ. I believe the gospel and I've been reconciled to a holy God. This sermon about the fear of God's holiness, that's for them. Well, praise God that you've been reconciled to a holy God. Praise God for the gospel. But friends, that does not exempt you from a healthy fear of God. God's people ought to fear him. Take a look at verses 8 and 9. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? David is angry 
because of what happened to Uzzah. And David is fearful because of what happened to Uzzah. We can have a, a debate, a friendly debate about like who in human history had the, the closest relationship with God. But I think on like everybody's short list is going to be David. David, the man after God's own heart. David, the sweet psalmist of Israel who wrote half the Psalms. David, a member of the hall of faith. David, the most prominent type of Christ in the entire Old Testament. Like David knew God. David loved God. David was a child of God. The Lord was his shepherd. Romans 4 even talks about David looking forward to Christ. And speaking of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Right? Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And David understood all that. And yet the same David, having witnessed firsthand the holiness of God, the terror of the holiness of God, he was afraid of the Lord that day. David, in spite of how close he was to God, or perhaps because of how close he was to God. David had a proper fear of God that impacted the way he lived. So Christian, I remind you of Paul's exhortation in 2 Corinthians 7.1. Since we have these promises, right? Like since we own these gospel promises, promises that we have been reconciled to a thrice holy God, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Brothers and sisters, we as God's people, like who truly know our God, we ought to, more than anyone else, fear him. Because only we really know what it means to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Let's pray. Father, you are a holy, holy, holy God. Lord, we are but wretched sinners who have rebelled against you. Yet in the gospel of your Son, you reconcile sinners like us to yourself through the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus. Father, what wonderful news that gospel is. Father, we pray for those in this room who do not know you. Lord, we pray that you would strike terror in their hearts as they think about your holiness, but that you would grant comfort through the gospel of your Son. And Father, we pray for those of us in this room who do know you. Father, we pray that we would never be irreverent or flippant in our worship but that we would always remember that you are a holy God who is to be revered. That we would serve you with fear and yet rejoice with trembling. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.